Welcome to the Blue Collar Scholar. I am your host, Will Wrights. I load freight with a forklift. I have been a bus driver and a substitute teacher, and I am a history graduate student. I am an ordained pastor, and I hope to become a history professor. In this podcast, we will explore history, theology, pop culture, current events, and perhaps a few other topics along the way. The Blue Collar Scholar is written, recorded, and edited by Will Wrights. The opening and closing music is Lo-Fi Summer Background by Vladislav Kurnikov from Pixabay. The purpose of this podcast is to educate. Use and distribution of this podcast can only be done by the express written permission of the content creator of this podcast. However, if you enjoyed this episode, I would appreciate it if you liked and subscribed to Blue Collar Scholar in Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast distributor. Writing a review, leaving a five-star rating, and sharing links in your social media platform is also much appreciated. Thank you for joining us. to the second half of Genesis. If you've read Genesis recently, you probably noticed that Genesis feels like two different books. Genesis 1 through 11, we talked about this earlier, uh, mytho-history. By calling it myth, we're not saying it's fake. We're saying that it serves as the ground, the grounding stories that the Jewish culture is based on. So Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel and Noah and the flood and the Tower of Babel are key stories that form the mythological foundation of the Jewish culture. Once you get to Genesis 12, everything slows down greatly. So Genesis 1 through 11, I think I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, if you were to cut the Bible in half chronologically, meaning the amount of time covered in the story, it's Genesis 12. The amount of time covered in Genesis 1 through 11 is the same as Genesis 12 through Revelation. Is that coincidence? Or... No, that's just Genesis 1 through 11 skips so much. So, on three different occasions in Genesis 1 through 11, the author will just break out and giving you long lists of names. And the earlier lists, I mean, those guys live like 900 years apiece. So. These are long stretches of time where we don't know what was going on. And surely Methuselah lived, according to Genesis, 969 years. Surely he did things. But what things did he do? We don't know. Genesis doesn't bother to give us any of the details of the life of Methuselah or Jared or Mahalalel or any of those other guys in that list. And so Genesis 1-11 through just covers so much time. And then once you get to Genesis 12, Genesis 12 through 50 is four generations. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Joseph, but Joseph and his brothers. Joseph is kind of the main character and his brothers are kind of secondary characters. And so that section of the book is called the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are usually the patriarchs, but if you follow the way Genesis is constructed, you've got to throw Joseph in there too. So those are the four patriarchs. And then I guess you can throw in Judah as well. There's a whole chapter dedicated to him that I'm sure he wishes wasn't in the book because he looks awful in it. But uh, So you've got five patriarchs, and then from them, the rest of the Bible, 
or at least the rest of the Old Testament, builds upon the stories in those four generations. And so you have probably 50, maybe not quite 50, let's say 40 generations, and then in the first 11 chapters, and then four generations. And so because it's the story of the patriarchs, it is actually pretty rare to tell the story of Genesis from the perspective of the women. And so we're going to break some new ground, perhaps, for some of us. I know I haven't necessarily done a study of looking at Genesis just trying to look at the perspective of the women, and certain things stand out. Like, one of the key stories in Genesis is God asking Abraham if he's willing to sacrifice his son on the mountain, and Abraham reluctantly does it. And the whole story is about Abraham's faith, and depending on how you read it, he's sure that God's either going to provide us another way, which He does, or God is a God of resurrection, so His Son will return with Him. There's all kinds of nuance to the story. But this week, I read it wondering, how did that entire event affect Sarah? She wasn't there. God didn't tell her anything about what was happening. When they came back, what did Isaac say? Hey, Dad tried to kill me on the mountain. That had to have affected her marriage and her relationship with her son, it had to have. There's no way for it not to. Unfortunately, Genesis doesn't tell us what those effects are, but I found myself this week just wondering. And there's a few other stories in Genesis that kind of stand out when you think, I wonder what was that experience like for the female involved? So I'm not going to do this every week because as we get deeper into the class, we're going to cover more scripture and I just won't have time to lay out every single female mentioned. But I decided, just like last week, I would show you every female in the, the second half of Genesis. We're not going to cover them all. So some of these you could, you could go back and, and look later. Like, I don't really see any need for us to cover Ada, Aholibama, or Basimoth, the wives of Esau. We really don't know much about them, except for the fact that we know that Rebecca, Esau's mother, did not like Ada or Aholabama. Did not like them at all. And why did she not like them? Well, Genesis doesn't necessarily say. Could it have been racial prejudice? Rebecca comes from the line of people that came from the east. So she's in the same family. I mean, she married her cousin. She's in the same family as Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Sarah, the whole, all, all the them family. But Genesis specifically says Esau married native women of Canaan. And so Adah and Aholabama were ethnically different. Could it have been racial prejudice? Could it have been religious prejudice? It's unlikely that these women would have been monotheists. Because at this point, it appears that Abraham's pretty much the only one. Genesis strongly suggests that he might have been the first, or at least the first since the early days of Adam and Eve and Abel, and but as humanity descended, it just everybody just evolved into polytheists, believing in all kinds of gods, whole courts with gods, king gods and night gods and gods of storms and monsters, etc., etc. And and here's Abraham called out by God. So Abraham comes from Ur of the Chaldees. This is a modern map. So the ancient sea line. If you cut out a bite of the end of the Persian Gulf, that land has come into existence in the last couple thousand years as silt flows down the Tigris and Euphrates River. 
So the coastline would have been somewhere around here, and this is where Ur of the Chaldees was. And so what is Ur? Ur was a major city in the Babylonian region. So this is the modern city of Baghdad, so Babylon would be right about here on the other river. This is the Tigris, so it's Euphrates. But through this whole valley, there were a whole bunch of ancient cities that were important, and Ur was one of those cities. Genesis suggests that Abraham was called out of that culture, so Abraham's family almost certainly worshipped Marduk, for instance, the high god of the Babylonian pantheon. So Abraham was called out of that, out of polytheism, and then forged, went off to a new land to try something new. And so I said we weren't going to talk about Adana Holobama, and here we are. That's all we've talked about so far. So let's start from the top. Sarah. Okay, so Sarah is Abraham's half-sister. If that disturbs you, I come to the conclusion I think it's supposed to. Because if there's one overall writing theme from for Genesis 12 through 50, it is that this family is not healthy. I was thinking about it today. I, I've never watched it myself, but mom and dad love Yellowstone. And then they, they've made a couple of prequel series named with the years, I think 1923 and 1883. I'm like, they could, they could come up with one that's like 3223 BC and just have a Yellowstone type soap opera with, and, and there's so many stories here that would actually make a really interesting soap opera because it gets disturbing at points. I mean, really disturbing and we'll cover some of the highlights as we go along. So just as an example of how disturbing it is, the fact that Sarah is her husband's half-sister doesn't even make the top ten of the things that are disturbing about the family dynamics in this book. I think that's important to say because as a pastor, I am often find myself, whether I should be or not, I find myself in a position where I try to defend the Bible a little bit. So I remember being in a church camp counselor at Camp Chippewa and we were telling the story of Daniel in the lion's den for obvious reasons, you know, God protecting his own, and et cetera, et cetera. And, but that, that passage about after it was all said and done, Darius the Mede went ahead and took all the people who were accusing Daniel and threw them and their wives and their children to the lion's den. And then the lions were so hungry that they crushed them before they even hit the floor. And then one of the kids said, Why the children? I had no idea what to say, so I was like, well, maybe they were involved with the plot. I don't know. I shouldn't have said that because that's ridiculous and stupid. The fact is that in that culture, usually the logic behind why you assassinate the entire family is because if you don't, then that five-year-old is going to grow up to be a 25-year-old who can throw a spear. And so you don't want to leave descendants to kill you later. That's usually the logic in the ancient world for that kind of stuff. Because you killed my family. Exactly. And so if you're going to kill any of them, you should kill them all. That's ancient logic. It's cruel and heartless, and thankfully most of us don't think that way anymore. That's typically how the ancients thought. So I remember trying to defend away some of the stuff you see in Genesis, and I remember one time thinking, well, maybe genes were purer back then, and it wasn't such a big deal to marry your half-sister and your cousin. And eventually one day it occurred to me, I don't have to defend Genesis. Perhaps Genesis wants to get across a point 
that these people aren't perfect, that these aren't great heroes. Every person in Genesis, with a couple of exceptions, do great and heroic things because they're all complicated people. They are complicated heroes. And so Abraham is a man of great faith. He believed what God said and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham also can't stop lying. Every time he visits a new strange place, he convinces his wife to tell everybody that they're not married. He can't stop lying. And then that gets passed down. Isaac's a liar. Jacob is the father of all liars. And then even Joseph, who is the hero of Genesis, if you pick one person who has the fewest blemishes, even he can't get away from lying every now and then. For instance, when his brothers come and they don't recognize him at first sight, he plays them for like maybe days or weeks, we're not sure, but he keeps playing them. And and that's basically lying by omission, by not revealing your identity. And so you see generational sin in Genesis. And just like you see generational sin later, David has a weakness for the women and Solomon says, hold my beer. Because David has some 60 wives and concubines and Solomon reportedly has a thousand. Yeah, it occurred to me a while back, I don't have to defend the Bible. When the Bible tells a disturbing story, let it be disturbing and ask why is the Bible being so honest? in this story. What about the disturbing nature of this story am I supposed to learn from? Because David is a great hero of the Bible, but that doesn't mean that if you're attracted to your neighbor that you should set her husband up in a situation where he's going to die and then take her as your wife, or as your probably 20th or 30th wife at that point. But just because David did it doesn't mean it's something to do. And so... As we tell some of these stories, they're going to be disturbing. Let them be disturbing. Just let it, let it sit with you because when it bothers you, I think at least often it's supposed to bother you. All right, so Sarah, half-sister. So they had the same father but not the same mother, if I remember this, the details correctly. So they are siblings. They probably grew up together. Their age difference is only 10 years so close enough that they probably knew each other as, as young youths, far enough apart that they probably had separate childhoods. Sarah's story picks up in Genesis 12. We're not going to read all of these passages. You can read these passages if you want to later. But I do want to read the ones about when our characters lie about being married. Because I think I, I want you to see patterns in the text. And this is, in Genesis at least, this is the clearest case of patterns in the text. So, we're going to go to Genesis 12. We're going to read 10 through 20. Now, notice the names are Abram and Sarai, or Sarai, depending on how you pronounce it. The Sarai is more of a Hebrew pronunciation, but I, uh, as a bus driver, I had a kid on my bus in Neosho whose name was Sarai. She was Latino. So, uh, I often find myself saying Sarai instead of Sarai, but it really doesn't matter. As long as you know. The the name comes from the Hebrew word for princess. So the implication is that Sarah is a high-ranking person. She is basically kind of like the queen before they had royalty. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. For the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. Then they will kill me, 
but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh in his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife, take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Okay, there's some things that need to be pointed out here. A lot of times reading the Bible requires you to read some things between the line. Here in a minute, we're going to read the story where this happens again. And in that case, the author is clear to point out that in that case, Abimelech, the king of what is called the Philistines, but it's more likely an, an earlier group that evolved into the Philistines. The Philistines won't actually be in the land until the Greek invasions. And so the Philistines are basically a a combination race of Greeks and Canaanites. But the king in the region that would eventually be Philistine region. And so Abimelech, in that story, the Bible is clear to point out that he hadn't slept with her yet. So the fact that this story does not point out that he hadn't slept with her yet implies that Abraham basically prostituted his wife to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, so that he could gain... Uh, well, so he could be safe, and in the process he became even more wealthy than he already was. Once again, it is supposed to be disturbing, let it be disturbing. Now, here's the interesting thing. If you do the math, when Abraham had Ishmael as his son, he was 75 years old, which makes Sarah 65. This is eh, 5 to 10 years before. So Sarah's not like a 20-year-old supermodel here. She's in her 50s, perhaps her late 50s. Imagine how beautiful, how amazingly beautiful she had to have been for that to work for all of the Egyptians to find her attractive. Now, I believe that is true, but also it's important for us to realize that one of the reasons why Pharaoh and Pharaoh's court would have found her attractive is because of how wealthy Abraham was. And so if Abraham walks into town with his sister, imagine like like a Russian oligarch who is worth so much money you can't really put it down on paper. Now, Abraham wasn't worth that much exactly because nobody was worth that much back then. It was without banks and bank accounts, you couldn't accumulate that much wealth. But if you accumulate so much wealth that you have to hire shepherds and military men to guard your stuff and so much that you and your nephew can't even hang out on the same hills, Abraham was a really wealthy dude. And so here comes a wealthy dude coming into town With his sister, well, you can have a chance to have a financial and political connection with this Hebrew oligarch. And so, yes, I do believe she was very beautiful, as the text says. I believe probably the more attractive thing about her was that political and financial connection. All right, so moving forward. So 
By the way, when you think of Egypt, modern Egypt is a big, giant, Missouri-looking country that goes out into the desert. That's not how the ancients thought. What was Egypt to the ancients? It was the river. And everything that was fertile because of the river was Egypt. Once you got out here into the desert, that wasn't Egypt, even though it is today. Now, the ancients would have thought of the coastline up here as Egypt because it was fertile and you could grow stuff here. But they didn't worry about all this stuff out here. About the best you can get for all this out here was there was mining operations out here, mostly for rocks to build the pyramids. But here's an interesting thing. Most of the pyramids were already built before Abraham ever stepped foot in Egypt. If you have a mental image of Jewish slaves building pyramids, that's, no, the pyramids were already up. The pyramids were an old kingdom built. By the time Jews are on the scene, you're already, you're about to enter the middle kingdom. And so, anyway, way too much information. So there was a famine in Canaan, this strip of land here that is now Israel. And because of the famine, they went to the fertile area, they went to Egypt. And because Abraham played Pharaoh and put Pharaoh in a bad situation, Pharaoh kicked him out. And so they went back to the land where God was sending them in the first place, the quote-unquote promised land, the hill countries of Judah and the river, the rift. Actually, have you ever heard of the Great Rift Valley in Africa? It runs kind of alongside the, the Nile. At some places, the Great Rift Valley. Uh, basically, it's a place where the earth is splitting. And the middle of Israel is part of that Great Rift. And so there's natural trade routes through there. There's excellent farmland. Eventually, there's a story, we probably won't read it because it doesn't really involve any females, where Abraham and Lot are saying, we've got too much wealth, we need to you know, not separate in terms of you're not my family anymore, but we need to separate our stuff. So which direction do you want to go? And Lot looks at the valley and says, well, I'll go there. Look at all that green. You can go live in the hills. And Abraham does so, and he prospers in the hills, and Lot goes into the valley where Sodom and Gomorrah are at, and he finds himself in a, in a pretty bad situation. So Sarah, she's first introduced as being from Ur of the Chaldees. They've already made the trip all the way to the Promised Land. They made a short trip to Egypt and were kicked out. Then God promises Abraham a son, and then Abraham and Sarah decide that they're going to do it themselves. So one of Sarah's key traits in Genesis is that she is barren. She has a hard time having children. So she says, oh, well, here, you'll take Hagar, my Egyptian maidservant, which just occurred to me. That's why they have Hagar. They had just come from Egypt where they were given male and female servants. So they have this slave girl who may or may not be there by her choice. She may, probably was a slave in Egypt and now she's a slave under uh, Sarah. Sarah takes, or Sarai takes Hagar and says, here, you can have this girl as your second wife and go, go make a child for me. And basically, Abraham and Sarah, they don't ask Hagar whether she wants to be involved in this or not. She really doesn't have a say. And Hagar, as, as a young, fertile woman, indeed, has a child, Ishmael. And Sarah, this is not her finest hour, 
instantly sours on the boy and on Hagar, her maidservant. She does not like this situation at all, which could have been predictable. Abraham should have seen it coming. Sarah should have seen it coming. Every time there's tension between Hagar and Sarah or between Sarah and Ishmael, between that side of the family, Abraham never steps up to defend his son or his second wife. This is not his finest hour either. Could we go back just a minute to the part where you touched on Abram being a liar when he said that Sarah was his sister. Did she willingly go live with the Pharaoh? Or You know, I don't understand how she might have felt because she was just handed off like a trophy. That's very good. That's part of what I was talking about. Is It's rare for us to look at Genesis and say... What's this look like from her perspective? I, I know, but we were talking about you, him being a liar, but look at what happened to her. I yeah, mean, and yeah. she now she goes along with the lie because what are you going to do? Just out and say, nope, my husband is lying. This is my husband. Well, that's probably what we do here. <laughs> well, no, yeah. And, um, now, Man, it's not having you on somebody. Yeah, the, situation, the situation's a, a little different. I know I, it's really different. No, no. But, and that's the whole No, you point. haven't. But yeah, it's a very good point, too. Did Sarah like that situation? I don't see how. Yeah, and I don't see how. So she, she didn't really have any say in it. Not really. Apparently. No. Now she could have had the behind closed doors. You you know, uh, Gretchen's good at that. You know, she she doesn't necessarily call me out in front of people, but if I make the wrong decision, I'll know. Yeah. I'll, there there will be there will be a point, and usually it doesn't take long once she and I are the only ones in a room. Well, I think we're all sort of like that, but. Anyway, it implies that she just did what Abram told willingly, without objection, that she would. That's interesting you put it that way, because I would say willingly, but I wouldn't necessarily say without objection. Unfortunately, I'm not sure her objection would mean anything. Well, and that's probably the reason she wouldn't have made one. Yeah. Because they, they didn't feel like they were worth anything other than a bed partner for the Pharaoh or whoever. And I also want to be clear. To say that Sarah and Pharaoh, whichever Pharaoh it was, actually consummated their fake marriage, that's an argument from silence. I think it's true, because reading between the lines, but it doesn't say, and then Pharaoh knew Sarah. It doesn't say that. So we don't know for sure. But at the very least, yeah, at very least, she was put in a position where that could have happened at the drop of a hat. That's what happens in harems. Oh, yeah. So Hagar, uh, and you can read about this in Genesis 16 if you want to, she is so mistreated she tries to run away, and an angel of the Lord comes to her and convinces her to stay with the family, which at that point, our, our, when our modern sensibilities were kind of like, we probably don't necessarily want you to be in that abusive situation. But for whatever reasons, he encourages Hagar to return, and Hagar does indeed bear a son, Ishmael, who is Abraham's first son. Traditionally, Ishmael is believed to be the father of the modern Arabic peoples. And so, traditionally, I don't I don't have the genetics to back this up, and if you, how would you get the gen- genetics from Ishmael anyway? I mean, traditionally, Ishmael is the father of the Arabic peoples, so we'll, we'll run with the tradition for right now. 
in Genesis 17, Sarah's name gets changed as well as Abraham's name gets changed. I'm not an, a good enough expert in the Hebrew to really explain to you why the name changes are significant. I will just say that they are. Every time a person's name gets changed in the Bible, it's not just a throwaway reference. And ironically, the one time where it might just be a throwaway reference is actually Paul. And that's the name change we all think is the most significant. Because Saul hated Christians, and Paul was the king of Christians. But actually, if you read Acts, it says, And then Saul went to this city. Oh, by the way, his Greek name was Paul, comma. And then from that point on in Acts, he's just called Paul. It doesn't actually, even though we, we all kind of think that that's what the Bible teaches, that he, he became a Christian and then all of a sudden he was Paul, it actually doesn't start going by Paul until he starts reaching out to the Greeks, which is like 10 to 15 years later. Anyway, that's a bunny trail. Back to Sarah and Abraham's names get, get changed. Not much. Abram to Abraham. Sarai to Sarah. But the name change, while I'm not a good enough expert in Hebrew to explain to you what the significance is, it is significant. And this is also where Sarah, once again, is promised a child. Genesis 15 is the famous scenario where Sarah laughs. And so, the apparently, if you read the whole story and then track the characters, it seems like there is God appearing as a human. This is called a theophany, an appearance of God in human form. That doesn't mean God's a human. I'm, I'm going to disagree with my Latter-day Saint friends on this one, my Mormon friends on this one. God is not and has never been a man. He is a spirit. But since he's all-powerful, he can do whatever he wants, and occasionally he appears as a man. I've heard all kinds of Christians say, well, since this is God as man, this is Jesus. Don't jump to that conclusion either. This is not necessarily Jesus. Now, I am also not in a position where I can say that, no, Jesus never appeared before his birth. What I can say is that every time a preacher says, well, see, that's Jesus wrestling with Jacob along the river, that takes away a little bit of the importance of Jesus being born. That Jesus, the the Son of God, became a human being. And since He doesn't have a DeLorean... You know, you guys, you guys get the reference back to the future. Since he doesn't have a time machine, I think it's highly unlikely that this story of the three visitors, or Jacob wrestling the man by the river, or a Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire, I find it unlikely that any of those stories are Jesus pre-existent. But just because of how important the birth narrative is, anyway. So three visitors, and if you follow the, the characters, it seems like this is a theophany, God appearing as man, and two angels. And the three visitors appear, and they make the prophecy that one year from today... So Abraham's already been promised, if I remember right, he's already been promised twice that he'll have a son. And then at this point, they say, one year from today, you will have a son through Sarah. And Sarah hears this from the other room, and she laughs. And they said, why did you laugh? And she goes, oh, I didn't laugh. And then they said, yeah, you did. And now, there are a couple of other laugh. When Isaac is born, she laughs again. This time it's not of derision, but of joy. And so she names Isaac that because from Hebrew, it is one who laughs. That is Isaac. And so if Sarah's number one character trait in the story is her barrenness, 
The second thing she's known for is this uh, laugh narrative, where at different points she laughs in derision at the words God says, but later when God proves faithful anyway, she laughs in joy and names her son after it. Isaac is born in Genesis 21, and then instantly Sarah loses all of her patience with Hagar and Ishmael and says, I don't want that slave woman or her, her kid. Remember, this is Abraham's son, but from her perspective, it's not her son. She didn't want the slave woman or that boy anywhere near Isaac, and Isaac is going to inherit everything, not that boy, even though that boy is 13 years older. And so she drives both of them out. And she drives them out at a time, apparently, or they went in a direction out in the desert, perhaps, where even though Ishmael is a 13-year-old boy, apparently he was at a point where he was on the verge of starvation or dying of thirst. Now, often if you read that story without knowing where you're at in the timeline, you imagine Ishmael being a baby. And that it seems to be more sense. Now, Ishmael's like 13, 14 years old. But their situation is so bad that he's on the, the verge of dying. Hagar is crying out, and the angel appears. This time, not saying, go back to the family and be mistreated. This time, the angel appears, provides water and food to Hagar and the son of the boy, to Ishmael. And then promises Hagar that Ishmael will grow to be a strong man and a father of many nations. And Genesis documents that he's the father of 12 tribes. And those 12 tribes traditionally are believed to be the fathers of the Bedouin tribes who eventually become the Arabic peoples. And so the the great nation of Saudi Arabia, as well as Bahrain, Yemen, Oman, Jordan, and the other Arabic countries are traditionally at least descended from Ishmael. And thus Hagar steps out of our story. Then Genesis 22 is the big story. Genesis 22 is Abraham's most famous story of sacrificing his son. But like I opened with earlier, I think it's important for us, at least for a moment, to just imagine how hard this had to have been for Sarah. So if you do the math, Abraham is 99 when Isaac is born. So Sarah is 89 or 90 when Isaac is born, and Isaac is now old enough to carry the wood and the knife as they go up to the hill. So he's at minimum 10, more likely 13 or 15. I lean towards 13 because that's when Jews have bar mitzvahs and young boys become men, and so that would, traditionally at least, that would seem to line up with significance here. So if Isaac is 13, that would put Sarah at a little over 100. So she's a very old woman, and her son basically was on the verge of being killed by her husband, by the boy's father. This had to have been traumatic. It had to have been. And then Genesis 23 is the story of Sarah's death and burial. And the significance of the burial, Abraham goes to the locals and asks to buy a field that field that stays with the family and a whole bunch of people, not everybody, but a whole bunch of people in this family get buried in the same field. The locals want to give it to him as to try to seek his favor, but he won't do it. He purchased it for a fair market value plus a little. Let's end Sarah's story by going back to the text. 
and we will read the story of where Abraham and Sarah lie about being married again. And I'm going to take your your suggestion. This is more Abraham's lie than Sarah's. I will grant that. Because Abraham, I mean, what's, Sarah doesn't have a lot of power here. If Abraham says to lie in the ancient world, I'm not sure how much power Sarah had to not. Anyway. So we're going to be in Genesis 20. Now, Abimelech is either a name or a title. If it's a title, then the Abimelech who appears later in the next passage we'll read doesn't isn't necessarily the same guy. It could be a title for like that tribe's leader. In the same way, in Scottish society, some uh, some of the tribes have terms like thane, and that's just an an, an old Celtic way of referring to uh, the leader of that particular tribe. So Abimelech might be a title or it might be a person, in which case Abimelech will appear again in our next scripture. All right, Genesis chapter 20. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she, ooh, interesting. I hadn't noticed that detail before. This time it doesn't seem like Sarah is actually doing the lying. It's just Abraham. So we can just say Abraham lies. Fix our notes there. Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And she, oh, I'm sorry. Here we go. And she herself said, he is my brother. So let's fix our notes back. (laughs) Yep, yep, she still lied. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in a dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place. That's an underhanded and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she indeed is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not uh, the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do to me. At every place which we come, say of me, He is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, 
and before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also he healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Any questions about Sarah? She is clearly the main character we will discuss tonight, but she's not the last character we will discuss tonight. I didn't lie when she said he is my brother. That is, that is yeah, true. That's what, one of the reasons why if, you, if you're in a court, I don't actually, I've never been on trial, so I don't know if this is more of a law and order thing or whether it's a real life thing, but at least on law and order they say, they make you put your hand on the Bible and say, do you tell the truth? Comma, the whole truth, comma, and nothing but the truth. Giving a half-truth is a form of lying. We'll go ahead and grant it's a lesser form of lying. I'm ashamed to say that I have what's known as gifted kid syndrome. Uh, I coined the term, so you can you feel free to use that term as well. So at some point, as a young person, if you are intelligent, and I'm not trying to toot my own horn, let me tell the whole story, you'll see that I'm not tooting my horn. As a young, intelligent person, you'll go up to a group of older people and you'll say something like, Rokjevik is the capital of Iceland. And then the older people will go, I didn't even know that. Wow, you're so smart. So the young, gifted child learns that if you learn interesting facts and you share them, then you'll be praised and thought highly of. And so you keep doing it. And if you're a person of high character, you will keep learning facts. And if you're Will Rice at the age of seven or eight or nine, you'll sometimes just make up facts. <laughs> and mom, thankfully, figured it out. I'm sure everybody but mom was willing to tell me when I was fibbing through my teeth. And so, yeah. Well, would you say that Sarah's, how she achieved prominence or her most important thing to remember about her is that she was barren, but when she got old, she had children that later became the fathers of all of these other people? Or would you say that she saved uh, Abram's life by going and living with the Pharaoh? Or, because actually, if she hadn't done that to begin with and he was killed, none of the rest of this would have happened. That is fair. That is fair. Now, my inclination is, and this is just... No, I, I, don't, I didn't mean to make a statement. I'm no, no. asking a question. Okay. No, it's a good question. Okay. What I'm saying is, is that is a fair observation, that by going along with it, Sarah did follow Abraham's dictates, and Abraham perhaps really was afraid for his life. How Pharaoh and Abimelech responded after they found out that she was his wife none of them tried to assassinate him. Now, if I were Pharaoh or Abimelech, I honestly would probably be more willing and likely to assassinate him after I've been played than I would just because of some rich guy coming into my country. I tend to think Abraham was paranoid, but I know enough of history to know that that paranoia probably did come from somewhere. Because it's not, a, there are times in history, like the French Revolution, where wealthy people sometimes get slaughtered because they're wealthy. And then people less wealthy take their wealth in the process. So, did Sarah save Abraham's life? Only God knows that. Did Sarah potentially save Abraham's life? Sure, absolutely. By protecting him at, at, at a particularly vulnerable point. 
I would say Sarah's most significant role she plays in the story is by having Isaac, and through Isaac comes Jacob, whose name is Israel, and therefore the people of Israel. At such a late age, God has to get credit for the Jewish people's very existence. That's the story we've all been taught, but it might not have happened if Sarah hadn't have gone to be in the harem of the Pharaoh. Which is a really good observation. So, yeah, that's a good observation. Before we move to later generations, let's talk about other women in that same generation. I mentioned a lot before, so when at the beginning of Abraham's story, God tells Abraham to leave his homeland, the kind of the southern Babylonian valley, and go to the land I'm about to show you, which is the modern day Israel. And it says, God says, take your wife and your family and belongings and go. And then it says, Abraham took his wife and also his dad and his nephew, which God didn't necessarily ask Abraham to do that. That doesn't mean that Abraham was wrong to do that, but it's just a detail. Now, Abraham took his father, and they only went as far as Haran, which is right here. So this is modern-day Syria, kind of on the border between Syria and Turkey. So they go right up the Fertile Crescent to the very tip of the Fertile Crescent, and then they stay there for years until Abraham's father, who I think his name was Haran, died. And then they went to the other, the other branch of the Fertile Crescent into the Promised Land. And then once they're in the Promised Land, both Lot and Abraham get fabulously wealthy. And wealth at this point in history, there's really no such thing as money. I mean, coins and and paper money, they they don't really exist. There's precious metal sharing, but usually uh, there was no such thing as liquid wealth. Your wealth was in stuff. So camels, by the way, ancient camels didn't look anything like modern camels. There were, the modern camels as we think of today did exist, but they were deep in Africa. They the, the Middle Eastern camels were completely different, smaller, kind of llama-looking pack animals. In case you run across an atheist who says, ha Genesis, Genesis says that they had camels, they didn't have camels, and they're absolutely right. But there is an ancient Middle Eastern camel that was smaller, and anyway. It has big a hump. In fact, I think they were, they were one-humped drum, uh, they were one-humped pack animals, so uh, I'm not an expert on, on the subject, but there were camel-like animals at this point in history. So goats, camels, cattle, oxen, etc., etc., slaves, and all that. And the more you had, the more wealthy you were. And apparently these guys were wealthy enough that they had whole hillsides, like a whole area of re- regions were just covered with their stuff. And so Lot and Abraham separate. Lot takes the valley area. Now, in Genesis, it says he looks to the east. And so they're probably standing in the Jordan River Valley, and he's looking in what today would be the West Bank, the area where modern-day Palestinians want to set up their country. And that's where he looks. And then Abraham looks west, but Genesis specifically says he goes into the hill country, which is south, down here. And so Lot goes into the valley, which is a much more prosperous territory, uh, much better for grazing and also agriculture, growing grains and stuff. But in the valley is Sodom and Gomorrah and Zoar and a a handful of other cities who by reputation even to this day 
they were like, you know, Vegas. And it was not a, a good situation. At one point, God sends the three visitors to Abraham to tell him he's about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham bargains God down. It's one of the most audacious moments between a man and God in the whole Bible. Where Abraham says, well, what if there's 50 people? What if there's 40? What if there's 35, 30, 25, 20, 15, 10? And then Abraham doesn't bargain down. Well, if he bargained down to five, then the cities would have been saved. Because the angel was only able to find, quote-unquote, righteous people, Lot, Lot's wife, Lot's daughters. And actually, no, five, it would have to have been four. Because the sons-in-law wouldn't go. They thought that they wouldn't go with Lot. They stayed and died in the city. And so the angel tells Lot and and his family to leave. And then famously, they said, don't look back. And Lot's wife looks back and turns into a pillar of salt, which is... It's played in the even in the text. It's played like like she was faithless or whatnot. But I'll be honest with you: if fire from heaven, which even from a naturalistic standpoint, I'm thinking like lightning and like a tornado kind of story with fires, or more supernaturally, like literally brimstone falling from the sky. Whatever's happening, I'm looking. Like even I, I don't. I forgive Lot's wife. And she had a, a, a bad uh, turnout. Now, here's the thing. It's important to remember that Yellowstone prequel that I talked about. There will have to be a whole episode dedicated to this because look right here. I put here on the notes Genesis uh, 19, 4 through 11. When the two angels go into the town, Lot does the appropriate thing that an ancient man is supposed to do and you offer hospitality. And he takes them into his house, is what it says, but it's most likely a tent. And the townspeople come and say, bring them to us so that we can know them. And I think you guys know your Bible well enough to know what's being implied there. And Lot says, oh, please, guys, don't do this thing. Hey, I got an idea. I got some daughters that are virgins. Why don't you have your way with them? So when the angel decided Lot was righteous enough to save, just imagine how bad everybody else was in town. Because that's that's not a Hall of Fame father move right there. That is an awful that is an awful move. Now, here's another one. If you're Lot's daughters in the tent and you hear your father saying that, what are you thinking at that moment? And their attitude towards their father from the, that and and honestly if your father's going to say something like that it was already probably a, a disturbing relationship anyway. But hearing that might have influenced their decision later when they get into the hills. So anyway, the angels lead Lot and his family out of town. Only he and his two daughters survive. The angel lets them go to Zoar, a smaller city. And by the way, when you see the word city in the Bible... Cities weren't necessarily dictated by their size as being massive. A city meant that it had a wall. So it was big enough that it was a walled enclosure. Interesting trivia, uh, what's the only walled city in North America? Quebec City. The French made Quebec City in the European style. Anyway, so they go to Zoar, a small city, which is probably the size of, I don't know, Shaw or something, it's, it, but it had a, had a wall around it. But... Apparently things didn't go well for them there, so they end up in the hills where Lot didn't want to end up in. Apparently they've pretty much lost everything. 
Is it, there, it doesn't say anything about having possessions or a bunch of goats and servants. They're at, at rock bottom. And the older daughter says, okay, here's what we're going to do. This family's going to die out. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to get our dad drunk, and then I'm going to sleep with him. And then I'm going to get pregnant, and then uh, then you can do the same thing. You can get him drunk and sleep with dad, and then you can get pregnant, and we can keep our family going. And that is how the, the nations of Moab and the nation of Ammon, the Ammonites, who are tribes that will appear over and over again in the Old Testament. This is the story about how they came about. So Moab and Ben-Ami, the father of the Ammonites. Now this is where, as a secular professor, I need to put to take off my pastor hat for a second and say this story has all of the hallmarks of an ancient polemic where if you're a Jew and you're writing the story and you want to make your neighbors look bad, you just made your neighbors look bad. Moab and the Ammonites look awful because you're basically saying, you came because once upon a time, two daughters slept with their dad. So that's how you guys came about. So I need to be fair. Even though I believe this story is true because I believe Scripture, as a secular teacher, I have to be honest and say that this story has all of the hallmarks of a kind of story that would be made up to make your the tribes you don't like look bad. And then finally, in this generation, after Sarah dies, Abraham gets another wife, Keturah. Now, Abraham's whole line... I'm going to go ahead and read it just so you can see how many sons he has. Abraham's whole story is that he didn't have a son until he was 75. And even then, God says, Okay, Ishmael's great, but that's not the son I wanted you to have, so here's the son of promise. Isaac is born, and Abraham is 99. So add time for Isaac to grow up. So Abraham's probably in his 110s. He marries again. And Keturah's story is Genesis 25. So this person whose whole story has been about how he struggled to find kids. Here we go. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Six. In his 110s. She was very fertile. Now, do these characters uh, appear anywhere else in the Bible? No. A couple of these names are significant. Midian. You'll see the Midianites a lot in Scripture, both in good stories. So like Moses' wife was a Midianite. And also uh, in bad stories. So in the book of Judges, at least one time that I know of, the oppressing peoples were the Midianites. So Midian is important. Also in the book of Job, two of Job's friends descend from some of these fellows. And so this is a good connection between the book of Genesis and the book of Job. Alright, that wraps up that generation. Now we'll move to the next generation and talk about Rebecca. Rebecca is introduced in Genesis 24. Now, interestingly enough, when Rebecca enters the story, she's being recruited by one of Abraham's most trusted servants. The servant goes back to his family. So they they go back to Haran. So once again, traditionally, it is believed that this servant is Eliezer of Damascus. Eliezer of Damascus is mentioned at one point before Abraham has any children. He's arguing with God, and God, sa- God says, I will bless you. And Abraham says, but... 
how could I be blessed when my descendant is Eliezer of Damascus? And God's like, okay, your descendant is not going to be your servant. I'm going to give you kids. So Eliezer of Damascus apparently is a high enough servant that this would be the guy who Abraham would trust. Eliezer goes from this land and goes up to Haran to the family that Abraham left behind. And while he's while Eliezer or whoever the servant is, the servant asks God, okay, here's what, what we're going to do. When I come to this well, if you'll bring a woman to the well and I'm going to ask the woman, can you drop your basket in and, and get me a drink of water? And if she says, I will do that and I'll also water your animals. Because that's, that's a lot of work. Because you're watering all, all the animals that he brings along with him. And I think implied also, this servant almost certainly isn't traveling alone. So this, if there's a woman who has got high enough character that she's willing to serve this group of strangers, then God, let that be the person who you have chosen for Isaac. Isaac's not here. He's not on this trip. And then Rebecca, who's very young, comes out and, and fulfills that prophecy. The servant goes into Rebecca's family, tells the whole prayer and the fulfillment of the prayer, and then the family asks Rebecca herself if she wants to go, which at this point is basically like the women's liberation movement in the book of Genesis, because she is actually given, well, yeah, she's given, she's given the option. She's given the right to make her own decision on this one, whether she goes with this man or not, and she says, Basically, if I'm the fulfillment of prayer, sure, I'll go. And so she returns back with the servant, traditionally Eliezer, and when they arrive, she sees Isaac, who is 40, young for Genesis, but but not a a real young man, and he falls in love with her instantly, and they have a beautiful relationship. Rebecca gives birth to twins, but no, no more, just two kids. So Rebecca probably also has the same thing that will come along with a lot of these female characters is probably some form of barrenness or at least difficulty having children. It might run genetically in the family. We're not sure. Except Leah. Leah has a whole slew of kids. We'll get to her in the next generation. The stories we read earlier about Abraham and Sarah and lying about being brother and sister, this story picks up again. Abraham's Not around, but it happens again. So Genesis 26, verses 6 through 11. So remember what I said about Abimelech. This may be the same person or it may be a title. This could be the original Abimelech's son or grandson. Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister, for he feared to say, my wife, thinking, lest the men of this place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. And, in this case, she also she was young. Sarah was not. Rebekah is quite young. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out the window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech, and some translations say caressing or cuddling. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she's your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife. Now, the mindset here, one of our people might accidentally have had sex with her as if she had, would have had no say in it. Might have easily have lain with their wife. You know, on accident. 
and uh, you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned the people, saying, whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Now, the key for Rebecca's story is that there's a lot of good about Rebecca, but she has a favorite child. Now, could there be reasons? I don't know. I don't have children myself, but I hope to one day. And I know that at least all of the parents that that are close to me, so my parents and my brother, each have two kids. And as far as I can tell, they don't have favorites. And with my parents, that had to have been difficult at times because I was the typical firstborn, which meant while I did plenty of that was bad in my life, don't get me wrong, but there was a lot of times where I was the, you know, I was perfect little goody two-shoes kid and Mickey was not. Mickey was the Mickey was the person who you know you would say, "Don't drop it," so he would look right into your eyes and go, "What you gonna do?" So it had to have been difficult at times for them to, for for one thing, to treat us the same. Now Mickey has grown into a fine man. I'm not. Uh, this is not any kind of judgment on on who he's become, but as a kid. If you're Tom and Robin Wrights and you want to discipline your children the same, that way the kids don't feel like one's the favorite. You have two options. One is you both kids get about the same amount of discipline, which means that my threshold for punishment would have had to be really low and Mickey's would have had to have been really high, which that wouldn't have been fair. Or you could punish both little children uh, when they deserve it, in which Mickey would have got punished a lot more, which does, to kids doesn't feel fair. The fact that Tom and Robin Wrights did the, our whole childhood and neither of us have any hard feelings just, to me, says they were fantastic parents. They, they threaded that needle. And now, with Mickey's kids, Brooks may one day turn into the kind of what you're going to do about a kid, but so far he's much more sensitive. I don't think Mickey has near as much trouble between with you know, kind of disciplining on the same level. But the kids are different. So like growing up, Mickey was more into farming and cows and farm toys and stuff, and, and I was more into books and stuff like you. So I kind of naturally gravitated more towards mom and more, and Mickey gravitated more towards dad. Now we both love both parents equally. All that goes without saying the reason I'm bringing all this up. Is it possible that the same thing was going on here in in the book? Well, Genesis itself kind of hints at this. It says Esau was a rugged man, big and tall and strong, and had thick red hair going all up and down his back and arms and legs and was a proper Viking in the middle of the Middle East. And Isaac seemed to like that, like the alpha male nature of his eldest son. And Rebecca seemed to gravitate towards the more sensitive, poetic side of her son, her younger son, Jacob. But unlike Tom and Robin Wright, who threaded that needle perfectly in treating their sons to a point where, at, at this point in my life, I honestly can't tell whether they have favorites or not. Except now, Gracie and Brooks are their favorites. Let's let's not let, let's not let's not kid ourselves on this one. But yeah, exactly. Both Isaac and Rebecca, I think, blew it by picking favorites and treating them very differently. So Isaac intends to give his blessing to Esau and to Esau alone. And Rebecca overhears this, and she intentionally, willfully works to deceive her own husband 
by working with her youngest son against her own son to steal the blessing. And in the ancient world, the blessing is really important. I mean, today, if your father gives you your blessing, I mean, that would be really important to me, but it wouldn't carry any, like, legal weight. If Dad says, I bless you and you will go on to be a great accountant, and I'll be like, well, I love you too, Dad. I'm not going to be an accountant. (laughs) In the ancient world, that blessing carried a lot of weight. And so Rebecca used her son to trick her husband to steal the blessing from Esau. Now, can you imagine this going well? Because it didn't. Jacob did get the blessing, the proper blessing. And then when Esau shows up, after having been tricked, he gets a lesser blessing from Isaac. And Esau decides, once my dad's dead, I'm just going to kill my brother. Cain and Abel all over again. Which Rebecca either overhears this or senses that this is true, and she convinces her husband to send Jacob away. And so Jacob leaves, and leaves for 20 years, breaking all ties with his father and mother and his brother. And so Rebecca's family literally falls apart. They become a broken family. I'm not aware, I looked through Genesis this week, I'm not aware of any story about the death of Rebecca. So I'm not sure when and if she died. I don't know if she was there when Jacob returned or not. She could still be around. That's what yeah. I suppose, but unlikely. All right, now we go to the final generation in the book of... Well, I guess there's, there's a Joseph's generation, but we'll go to the third generation in the patriarchs and look at Rachel and Leah. So Jacob is sent by his father north to Haran, to the land where his his extended family has set up their stomping grounds. And Jacob falls in love with his... Now, if I've got this right, this would be his first cousin once removed. So it's not the same generation line. The northern family has had shorter generations. The southern side of the family... I mean, Abraham was in his 90s when he had kids. So I believe it's his first cousin once removed, Rachel. And he convinces his cousin, I think yes, Laban I believe would be Jacob's cousin, he convinces his cousin to allow him to marry Rachel. And he says, sure, work for me for seven years and I'll give you Rachel. Which to me suggests, and the scripture does not say this, to me suggests that Rachel probably wasn't quite old enough to be married. And so this timeline is not only is not only provides Laban with some some value. So yeah, you work for me, we'll do some agricultural work, we'll both get wealthy, and then you can marry my daughter. It also maybe would give Rachel time to not be too young. So seven years elapse, and Jacob says, okay, it's time for me to marry my wife. And Laban says, sure. And apparently Jacob got pretty drunk because he when he got the, woke up the next morning, uh-oh, he married the wrong sister. And, uh, yeah, it wasn't a mistake. Laban, Laban basically admits he tricked Jacob. It's like, I'm not going to... I, I think I've told you guys this story before when my now brother-in-law-in-law went to the Philippines and proposed to his wife, Griselle, my sister-in-law. My mother-in-law, Gloria, said, now you need to go back to the United States... And you need to find a husband for my Gretchen because the older daughter has to get married before the younger daughter. And 
Everybody swears she was kidding, but Peter didn't think she was kidding. So when he came back to America thinking, okay, I need to find Gretchen a husband, and then he... We didn't know each other yet, but we had a common friend. So he saw a bunch of the stuff I was posting on Facebook and dropped me a message saying, hey, you don't know me, but I think you should uh, meet my fiancé's sister. So that's how, that's how I met Gretchen. So apparently... So then he could get married. Yes, yes. And, and actually, yeah, we got married in December of 2014, and they got married in April of 2015. So You're kind of a piece out of the Bible. <laughs> and then their third sister got married the following year, and we're still waiting on the brother. So he's living it up the single life in Australia. So Jacob is now legally married to Leah, the sister who. The scripture doesn't say a whole lot about her character, but the word Leah means fragile, in or is based on the word fragile in, in Hebrew. She might have been weaker, maybe less outgoing. We're not sure. They we're reading between the lines on this one, but Genesis implies she was, at very least, she was less attractive than her younger sister, Rachel. And so Jacob, of course, is furious and asks Laban, what's what on this? And Laban's like, okay, okay, yeah, we tricked you. Tell you what, go ahead and spend a week with Leah, and then we'll do this again. You can get married to Rachel. You can be married to both of my daughters. Yellowstone prequel right here. I'm telling you right now. And Jacob says, okay, sure. And, and, oh, and by the way, he says, in exchange, you'll work for me for another seven years. Now, this time, he doesn't have to wait another seven years, but he worked seven years to get Rachel, and now he's working another seven to have had Rachel. So, so he gets married to two women, and then the Yellowstone prequel, we're heading for sweeps now, and we're turning up the... So here's what happens. So... Leah is, she bucks the family trend. She's the fertile one. So she has four kids, four boys, right in a row. And she, and so she's having children. Rachel is not having any children. And so Rachel says, okay, you're going to take my handmaid, which uh, is Zilpah. And down here, you could, if you want to look up later, you can see the scripture references for Zilpah. Rachel says, here's Zilpah, my handmaid, who is ethnically from the people of the Chaldeans. So she is not a Canaanite. Bilhah and Zilpah are not Canaanites. They're not from the land, of the promised land. They're from back home. But uh, they're not in the family, which honestly, genetically, was probably a good thing. So Rachel says, here, you're going to take Zilpah, and then she's going to be your wife too. So Jacob's like, all right, let's do this. Zilpah has a couple of kids. So then Leah says, all right, two could play at that game. Here's my maid, and you're going to sleep with her too. So Jacob's like, all right. So Bilhah has a couple of kids, and then Leah has even more kids, another son and a daughter. And then finally, at the end of all things, then God finally opens Rachel's womb, and then she bears a son, Joseph, who once again... Jacob doesn't learn from the mistakes of his parents. He has a favorite son, and that favorite son is is clearly Joseph. Now, the reason why Joseph is his favorite son is because Joseph is the only son of his favorite wife. He's got four wives now, and he's got a clear favorite. So uh, you mentioned that Leah was the fragile one. Well, Leah comes from a Hebrew root, which one interpretation could be fragile, fragility, or she wasn't too fragile. Though. Apparently, no. No, she she had uh, what was a uh, 
there was a sitcom in the 90s that I think it was Roseanne that, that described a woman as having a childbearing hips. Yeah. She's got childbearing yeah. hips. And you know, it makes me wonder that, you know, four of these women sharing the same husband, I mean, they couldn't have lived in harmony all the time. No. You know, I mean. Well, no, and you see, the, like, there's one case where when Leah has her final son, it's because her eldest son, Reuben, goes and picks mandrakes and flowers for his mother because he's a good son. Later you'll see he's also a little bit of a horn dog, but we'll get to that. Because he's a good son, he picks some flowers for his mommy. And Rachel is jealous because she, as of yet, doesn't have a son to pick flowers. So she says, give me some of those flowers. I want some of those flowers. And Leah's like, okay, then you let our husband sleep with me you know, in exchange. So apparently Jacob hasn't been spending time with Leah for a while. He's been shacking up with his favorite wife, and Rachel trades some love and time for some flowers, which was a bad trade, and then Leah has her final kid because of it. So what's happening today has deep roots. Back then it seemed to be sanctioned. Yeah. Well, that's that's just it. It was common. It was common. I'm not sure if it was sanctioned. See, when you get to Leviticus, you'll see in the sex ethics chapters of Leviticus specific laws that go against Genesis. Do not sleep with your half-sister. Do not sleep with your aunt. Do not sleep with your half-brother's mom, which is coming up here in a second. Don't do any of this. And Sometimes these laws seem to be specifically inspired by Genesis. Like I said earlier, I once upon a time tried to give apologies for Genesis and really I, I, once I realized, no, just let it be disturbing. Because these people were not perfect. These were not Jesus. The, the, yeah, these weren't Jesus 1.0. No, no. The, these guys were Jesus' ancestors, but they weren't Jesus. It might have been common practice, but now in this day and age, when you do that and intermarry and all, you get up with kids that are not very smart, that are get all kinds of problems. And it might, it might have been the case back then, too. There, there was a lot of intermarriage in Europe, for instance. I was going to say, isn't that what happened to some of the... Yeah, the most powerful of all the royal families in Europe by the time you get to the late Middle Ages and early Renaissance was the Habsburgs of Austria. And at that point, when you say the Habsburgs, they're originally from Austria, but at this point the Habsburgs are in charge of Spain, Portugal, the Netherlands... Uh, Germany, Austria, parts of Italy. So they're, they're spread out, but they keep marrying cousins and stuff. So you get, to, you get to Charles V, the most powerful ruler in European history, and he's got a chin that juts out so far he can't chew. His teeth did not meet. By the time you get to World War I, yes, the Habsburgs were still a thing. By the time you get to World War I, you have entire generations of idiots and infertile and I'm using the word idiot there technically, yeah, a technical, yes, yeah. the technical term. A whole generation, not a whole generation, they weren't all. A little bit of that problem. A little. You could see, now, the royal family in England, to be fair to them, they've diversified. William and Kate are not related. And I don't think Charles and Diana were particularly related either, but Elizabeth and Philip were second cousins. And... Victoria was cousins with Albert, and yeah, it used to be a thing. But yes, and that could play, honestly, that could play a role in a lot of 
Because inbreeding, one of apparently, I'm not an expert. Apparently, one of the traits that will rise in inbred populations is increased hostility and violence at the drop of a hat. For instance, that is one theory about why Hatfields and McCoys devolved into a miniature war in the 1870s is because they were mildly inbred populations, cousins and cousins and cousins. Well, you could. I mean, you could travel, but they didn't really have Facebook to allow you to meet a cute girl from the Philippines. <laughs> maybe that's why they, they uh, never have peace well, you, in that maybe. area. They just fight all the time. As far as I can tell, I don't think inbreeding is widespread today in the Middle East. But really, I mean, if you go back far enough in history, you know, unless you lived, like, if you lived on the sea, you have more genetic diversity because of port cities and mixing and matching. But if you lived in the middle of Siberia, for instance, you're going to have to travel for days to find somebody who's not your third or fourth cousin. So yeah, these are factors. The inbreeding could possibly have affected some of the rivalries, violences, and disturbing nature of what's, what's going on here. So Jacob works for seven years, marries two daughters of his cousin, works another seven years. During that seven years, has a slew of kids. And then he gets ready to leave, and Laban's like, no, 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 we'll stick around. We'll, you keep working for me, and this time we'll divide the herds. You take all the, I forget if it was striped or spotted. One took stripes, one took spotted. Oh, I believe it was um, Jacob was to take the stripes, and Laban was to take the spotted. And then Genesis does, this is one of those times where I said I keep trying to come up with excuses for Genesis. Jacob engages in outright magic. It's called sympathetic magic and it's ancients believed that you could do stuff like this. So Jacob took poplar I believe it was popular. He took uh, strips of, of branches. So if you take a young tree, you can peel bark off. It's not hard and brittle. It's like a... a yeah. And you can lay... He laid that in the trough and the, the animals drank above those stripes and then they would have striped kids. The, the genetics the genetics of this does not exist. So your options when reading the text is, A, this is a completely made up part of the story. Two, magic is real. Or three, God probably face-palmed a little bit and but went ahead and let it work. It's like, I still want to bless Jacob, so sure, let it work. And so he works another six years. So he works 20 years. So he, he works... 14 years for his wives, 6 years for his wealth, and then he takes off in the middle of the night because he's tired of being used and by his cousin. And there's a lot of details in there I was going to go through, but... Well, here's one I'll throw up. So as they're getting ready to leave, Jacob says to his wives, I've worked all this time, and your father already tried to marry... You know, you know and he's, he's saying this sympathetically, so Leah's... I'm sure she also feels like she probably wants to marry a guy who fell in love with her. So she's probably, they're probably commiserating on this. It's like, we, we got tricked into getting married. I worked another seven years for the wife I wanted. Your father kept trying to hide the flocks from me so that I couldn't genetically diversify the flock in order to get the right amounts. God stepped in and made sympathetic magic work and but that's the only reason we've gained any wealth and I'm tired of being played by your father and then the, both sisters say we agree 
we're tired of this too, let's go. And so they go, and then, but Rachel steals the household gods, which tells us two things. Laban's side of the family wasn't quite the monotheists that we thought they were, so they, he had idols. And Rachel apparently wanted to have the idols. Now, it's possible Rachel just wanted them for the monetary value. It's also possible that Rachel also wanted to pray to these idols. The interesting part of this story is part of where the Genesis gets a little PG-13. Laban catches up with Jacob and says, How dare you run out in the middle of the night and you steal my gods? And Jacob honestly says, Dude, I didn't steal your gods. That's not my thing. And he says... Go ahead, check, see see if anybody's got it. So Laban goes and checks all the tents, and when he gets to Rachel's tent, she's sitting on the saddlebag and literally says to her dad, Sorry, I can't get up. I'm on my period. <laughs> and he's like, oh, okay. And then just doesn't want to have anything to do with that. As they're approaching their homeland, this is the first time Jacob's going to see Esau in 20 years. Jacob first arranges his whole family with Leah and Leah, or no, excuse me, Bilhah, Leah's maidservant, and her kids first. And then Zilpah, his other maidservant, and her kids second. And then Leah and her kids. And then finally, Rachel and her one son at this point, Joseph. And then finally, Jacob. So he arranged himself. So he arranges the whole family in order of what he values the least to what he values the most in case Esau starts attacking. It's in the midst of this arrangement that God meets him on the shore of the river and they wrestle all night. And God changes Jacob's name to Israel, meaning the one who strives with God. And through this encounter, somehow, Jacob realizes that his priorities are shook. So he keeps the women in the same order. uh, Maidservant of Leah, maidservant of Rachel, Leah and Rachel, and then all their kids in that order. But he goes to the front. And he's the one who goes out to meet Esau. And it turns out, after 20 years, Esau doesn't want to kill him anymore. And they don't seem to be quite on great terms because they share some niceties, but then they go their separate ways and apparently don't really see each other again. But at least they're not actively trying to murder each other. So at least they've got that going for them. Then, Rachel gets pregnant again. So God blesses her again, but this time, it doesn't go well for her. She is dying in childbirth and she names her son Ben-Ami, which means son of my pain, or son of my despair. And Jacob to his credit, says, no, we're not doing that. We're going to name him Benjamin, which I don't know, a son of you know something better than despair. And Rachel dies. And so that's the end of her story. But Jacob continues on with Leah. Now, at some point, Leah dies as well. And Leah is, Rachel is buried as they're traveling. But Leah, at the end, she's buried in the family plot where Abraham and Sarah and Rebecca and Isaac, well, Isaac's not dead yet, but will be buried. Leah gets the honored burial, not Rachel. So in the end, she gets she gets the final honor. So Rachel's buried where? Somewhere along. Some yeah, somewhere between somewhere between Haran and this. Well, okay, so it, it the family plot was down there. 
Yeah, the family plot would, Mamre would be between Jerusalem and the Dead Sea, so somewhere in this area, in this hill country, is where they would they set up their, their family for, the hills are good for raising cattle and goats and stuff. So. Well, she died too far away to get her there in time. Probably. And so she... They did embalm them. <laughs> well, they were on foot. Yeah. That'd that take a long time. Yeah, yeah on foot. On foot and an ancient camel. <laughs> now, Donkey. At this point in Genesis, the stories aren't necessarily in chronological order. For a few chapters, the stories are shared by topical order. So I'm not entirely sure where these stories fall in order. But, for instance, let's talk about Dinah. Jacob has one daughter, Dinah. And we don't know much about her lineage afterwards. She marries the son of one of these Canaanite towns because she was raped by that son. This little princeling thought she was hot and rapes her. And then... She marries him? That's just it. In, in the ancient world, that was a way of getting away from the shame of it. As well, at least, you know, at least let's make it official. Yeah, let's make it official. And Simeon and Levi are the two moderns in the group. They're the ones that, like... That doesn't make it right. And so Simeon and Levi are like, okay, Canaanite town, we're circumcised. We have this new trend that we've brought from the east that, well, actually, Genesis says that it was um, uh, God told Abraham to do it, but there's some evidence that the circumcision was, was something that was had been at least, it's something they've at least heard of before. So, we do the circumcision thing. So, the extra skin on our penises, we remove that ceremonially. Why don't you guys do that? Then we'll all be one people. And apparently this little princeling rapist, at least, was excited enough to be with Dinah that he convinced his his father and his whole town, yeah, let's do this. That way I could be with this girl that I like. And I don't have enough self-control to not rape. And so the whole town has circumcision. Now, here's the thing. I was circumcised as a newborn, so I have no memory of it. And thank you, Mom and Dad, for doing it that way. They got circumcised as adults, which which very painful and involves a healing period. And during the healing period, Simeon and Levi went in and slaughtered everybody. And... Now, Jacob says that you've, you've made my name a stench in the nostrils of the people around us, so chances are everybody else is going to hear about what happened. And Simeon and Levi's response is, you know, what's the alternative? That our sister be treated like a prostitute? What may have been the result of this is Dinah may have never had another husband because she's never mentioned as having any offspring. Those offspring are never discussed again. And Jacob brings it up again. I mentioned here in Genesis 49 at the end, when Jacob's handing out all of his blessings to all of his kids, his blessings to Simeon and Levi are, you two are violent brutes, murderers, and jerks. There's your blessing, especially to Levi, who's going to go on to, his kids are going to be the priestly class of all Jews. But... That's not the blessing he gets. The blessing he gets is that you're violent and I don't want anything to do with you from their father. We mentioned Esau has uh, wives. Now, 
these, like I said, this, these stories and these chapters are not necessarily in order. Esau marries Ada and Aholabama, which are Canaanite women. Rebekah and Isaac are not thrilled. And when Esau realizes that they don't like his choice in wives, he marries another woman, Basimoth. Basimoth was the, uh, a descendant of Ishmael. So at least they're more related. Because Ishmael would have been Esau's great uncle. No, it was uncle, just his uncle. It was his uncle. So he marries his uncle's granddaughter. The story of Tamar is important. Judah, the fourth son of Israel, the fourth son of Jacob. This is really important because Judah, not he himself, but his descendants will go on to be by far the largest of all the Jewish tribes. In fact, the word Jew comes from Judah. And so his tribe becomes so large and historically significant that the entire nation of Israel gets used with an adjective that comes from his name. So Judah has a couple sons, and the older son marries a girl named Tamar. And Judah's eldest son is a pervert and a sinner, and God strikes him down. So Tamar goes to Judah's next son. But the next son says, Oh, according to this our ancient customs, if I have any children, those children will belong to my dead brother. So when he met in the marriage bed with Tamar, when it came time to release, he would pull out and release. Not He wouldn't have sex. He wouldn't complete the, the, the procedure. And that angered God, so the next son gets struck down. Now, Judah has another son who's a, a mere child at this point. But ancient custom says that Tamar gets passed on to, within the family until that younger son can produce children to carry the name of both of his now dead brothers. But Judah at this point says, I, I don't know, maybe it, Tamar's the problem. Maybe all my sons will die, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send Tamar off. She's going to live in a city that's kind of not far away, but not very far away, and, and I'm just going to kind of ignore her and pretend she doesn't exist. And when it came time for his third son to be old enough to marry, he doesn't do what he's supposed to do. He doesn't hand off Tamar to his third son. So Tamar comes up with a plan. She sees Judah coming to her city. I guess Judah forgets which city his daughter-in-law's in. And he apparently forgets what his daughter-in-law looks like because she puts on a veil and he thinks she's a cult prostitute because a lot of these towns were polytheistic. They were all polytheistic. But some of these towns would have temples to fertility gods or goddesses like Asherah, who we discussed a couple weeks ago. And if your temple, if your church is to a fertility god, then part of the worship will be sex. Is part of what your temple does. So that temple will have temple prostitutes. So he thinks, this is a temple prostitute, to a god I don't worship, but I'm a dude, so I kind of like to have sex. So he comes up with this agreement with this girl he thinks he doesn't know. And she says, what will you give me? He gives his signet ring and his staff, and they do the deed. And then he leaves and goes on his way, and he's expecting this girl to... uh, He sends his friend back to the town with money, 
but there's no temple prostitute anywhere in sight. So Judah thinks he's lost his signet ring. Signet ring, by the way, has your seal on it. And if you send a, a letter, put a little wax on the on the seal. You stick your signet ring. It's got your seal on it. Everybody knows who sent the, the letter. So he's lost his signet ring and his, his staff. Then he hears through the grapevine that his daughter-in-law is pregnant. <gasps> How dare she? And so he says, well, off with her head then. And apparently it wasn't an instant execution because she has time to send a message to Judah saying, you might know who the father is. The father just happens to be the owner of these things, the signet ring and the staff, and he realizes, oh, okay. So he cancels the execution order. She gives birth to his fourth and fifth son, and they're twins, and Genesis says he never slept with her again, which I guess is a good thing. I mean, but that means she never had a husband, so she just has the the, the two kids. So Tamar is important because she's one of the Gentiles, non-Jewish people, who appear in Jesus' genealogy in Matthew. She is also a person who is specifically shown that despite the sin in her story, she's not perfect in this story, but she's clearly superior to the guy. So this is one of the stories in the Bible that shows you the, the male hero of the story should be Judah. This story should be his story of virtue and wonderful and, and protection and, and ah, he's so great and wonderful. But no, he's a perverted old man and the cult prostitute ends up being the hero of his story. It's a story in the, in the text of Scripture which turns the whole everything on its head. Okay, so with the time remaining, let's talk about Joseph. Joseph was the next to youngest son of Jacob. Joseph, you guys, I think you know the story. Uh, he was Jacob's most loved son, but he was also a prophet, so he had visions from God. He also apparently lacked some tact because he just came out with the visions that said, I'm going to be, eventually I'm going to be greater than all my brothers and even my mom and dad. And that didn't set well with anybody. He became the target of a conspiracy among his brothers. Some of his brothers wanted to kill him. Some of them arranged for him to be sold into slavery instead. So he goes to Egypt. He is sold into slavery into the house of a man by the name of Potiphar. Potiphar may or may not have been a priest because later in the book of Genesis you hear of a person by the name of Potiphar, the priest of On. On is a town in Egypt. This may or may not have been the same person or Potiphar and Potiphar may be in the same family with similar names. Potiphar apparently is a wealthy guy. He maybe has a role in the government, and Joseph serves the family well. Except, and here's the one case in Genesis that I can think of, of a woman with no redeeming uh, at least in the text, nothing about her is a redeeming quality. She is a villain in this story, and that's Potiphar's wife. Once again, she's not given a name. She's just called Potiphar's wife. And her role in the story is that she's she's a cougar. You guys know that term from sitcoms? An older woman who has a thing for a younger man. And she wants Joseph. And she keeps trying to arrange it so that they're the only people in a room together. And she finally arranges it to where it's perfect. And she grabs him by the cloak and says, Sleep with me! And he just... Thus, you know, slips out of his cloak and runs out of the room. And then Potiphar's wife, I guess that was her best chance, and she gets angry and she takes the cloak to her husband and says, 
Do you recognize whose cloak this is? He just tried to rape me and he ran off without his clothes. And so Potiphar is justifiably angry because he thinks his wife was just about raped by his slave. And so he has Joseph thrown into prison. But God still uh, protects Joseph in prison. Joseph is put in a position where he is actually kind of running the prison. And two other prisoners are a cupbearer and a baker of the, of the Pharaoh. And they have dreams. One dream where, I'll just cut to the chase, the dream basically tells the cupbearer he's going to survive and the baker that he's going to get executed, and that ends up happening. But the cupbearer forgets all about Joseph until later when the Pharaoh has his own dream about seven strong stalks of corn being eaten by seven weak grains of corn and seven strong cattle being eaten by seven scrawny cattle who don't get bigger when they eat the big cows. And none of the magic people are able to interpret the dreams, but Joseph says, actually God told me that that means we're going to have seven really good years followed by seven really bad years. So what you need to do is you need to set up a system where you gather food now so that you have storehouses later. And, oh, you need to pick somebody wise to arrange all this. And Pharaoh says, okay, you do it. So he elevates this prisoner to prime minister of all Egypt. And in the process, he is given a wife, Asenath, who is mentioned by name. This is, as far as I know, the last time you'll ever hear the name. What's significant about Asenath is that she is ethnically Egyptian. She is not Jewish. And she gives birth to Ephraim and Manasseh. That's significant because if Judah is the biggest of the tribes, Ephraim is definitely number two in the biggest tribes. And so this could be a similar, similar to the earlier thing about Moab and the Ammonites being children of the worst case of incest. This could be a similar thing to where it's possible, I don't believe this, that a Judean, somebody from the tribe of Judah, is saying, oh, you Ephraimites, you're half Egyptian. You're mixed. You're mixed breed. But Asenath is the daughter of Potiphar, the priest of Bon. So she comes from the religious tradition in Egypt. But there's nothing mentioned in Genesis about her religious convictions, whether she maintains Egyptian faith or whether she accepts the Hebrew faith of her husband. And then the, you guys know the rest of Joseph's story. If you don't, I would encourage you to read it. It's a really good story. There's only one other woman mentioned in Genesis, and that is Sarah, the daughter of Asher, the granddaughter of Jacob, and we know nothing about her. What's interesting is it's in the list of 70 other names that are listed as the Jews who leave Canaan to live in Egypt during that famine that Joseph saw in the dream, and she's the only female mentioned. So her mention there is significant, but I don't know what the significance is. And honestly, nobody does. Her name was thrown in the list, so the ancients probably knew what it was significant, but I'm not aware of any Bible scholar that I know of that has ever even mentioned her. So I don't know of her significance. Do you guys have any question about any of that? And are any of you screenwriters will get to work on that sitcom based on this family. Not sitcom, Yellowstone prequel. This is a messed up family. We hope you have enjoyed this production of The Blue Collar Scholar. 
I am your host, Will Wrights. Any factual errors made in the preparation or recording of this podcast are unintentional, and your feedback is welcome. You may contact me at thewillwrights at gmail.com. That's T-H-E-W-I-L-L-R-E-I-T-Z at gmail.com. The Blue Collar Scholar is written, recorded, and edited by Will Wrights. The purpose of this podcast is to educate Use and distribution of this podcast can only be done by the express written permission of the content creator of this podcast. We hope you have enjoyed this episode, and we hope you will be back to download more. And thank you.